Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast by the Yeager Institute at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Kate Francis, an independent consultant currently serving as a gender advisor at the Asia Foundation. All views expressed by Francis on this podcast are her own. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on Trade Matters today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. Oh, I am too. You know, I have realized, you know, more and more recently that the trade policy community is talking about gender equality and women's economic empowerment more and more. And often those conversations focus on how women across the world can better access the benefits of free trade agreements or how free trade agreements could be designed to help reduce gender inequality. And the World Trade Organization is doing a lot more work, especially over the last few years, to institutionalize gender into what it does every day. But first, I think it's important to understand the barriers to economic advancement that women around the world face, the beyond the border issues that not only impact women's ability to benefit from trade agreements and free trade, but can also impact their overall economic well-being and kind of ability to advance economically where they are. The World Bank and WTO issued a report in 2020 called Women and Trade. And there's a quote in that report that I think really clarifies this for me and is a great starting point for our discussion today. And that is, quote, the extent to which women can take advantage of trade opportunities depends on more than trade policies, unquote. And this report goes on to mention the importance of investments in education, health, infrastructure, as well as access to finance and digital technologies. I think this is a really important point, and these happen to be the kinds of things that are traditionally in the realm of international development, which is your area of expertise, especially when it comes to women's economic empowerment. And so I thought of you right away um, when I knew I wanted to do a podcast episode on this topic. You and I first met at the Asia Foundation, where you work now, where I had the privilege of writing about some of the work that you have done and your colleagues have done to help improve the lives of women all over Asia. And I've always been so fascinated by and so impressed by the dogged on the ground work day after day, year after year, even decade after decade that the Asia Foundation (laughs) is doing. Um, And so for our listeners who don't know what the Asia Foundation is, um, it's a nonprofit or national development organization that's committed to improving lives across a dynamic and developing Asia, which I think is a terrific statement of the organization's work. But I'd like to start by you know, having you tell us a little bit more about the nature of your work, both for the Asia Foundation and other work that you've done, um, and what the, the foundation is doing for women across Asia. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, um, Jill, again. And, you know, I'm really excited about this work that you're leading, and um, in particular, the questions that you're asking. Um, it's just really um, thrilled to be part of the conversation. Um, you know, like you noted, um, the Asia Foundation is a nonprofit international development organization, and we focus on a number of areas that we see as essential for building broad-based um, social and economic progress across the countries where we work. We have 19 country offices. I think back when we worked together, it was 18. Um, so we have one more now, and um, you know, based across the Asia-Pacific region. And some of those have been around for nearly 70 years, going back to your point about decades. Um, there's been almost seven of them. And um, we're really, really lucky to um, have some of the most talented and inspiring staff collaborating on on a lot of these key issues that we work on, which include um, good governance, women's empowerment and gender equality, um, inclusive economic growth, uh, the environment and climate action, 
and regional and international relations. Um, but given you know, our topic today, I thought I'd do you know, kind of one click down on how we work on gender specifically. Um, we take a, a two-pronged approach to, to addressing women's empowerment and gender equality. One approach is designing programs that specifically target problems that are holding women back from reaching their full potential and you know, equi equitably engaging in society. So these programs that you know, explicitly focus on gender gaps can include things like building women's political uh, leadership in public office or combating gender-based violence or um, you know, supporting women's entrepreneurship through women-only business incubators. The other approach um, is that is focusing more on gender mainstreaming and gender equality, uh, sorry, gender integration. And this basically just means that we recognize that women are a key constituency across everything that we do, um, you know, at the Asia Foundation in every program that we implement, whether it's climate change or, you know, including inclusive economic growth or addressing violent conflict in communities. You know, all of these programs are not specifically designed to advance gender equality as a primary objective, but by using a gender mainstreaming approach and gender analysis, we're you know, able to understand how diverse groups of women are affected by this issue that we're working on or you know, what their priorities are within the context of the problem. And then perhaps most importantly, how they can contribute to and participate in a solution that's gonna be ultimately more sustainable for everybody. Uh, at the end of the day, because it's better reflects a broader set of priorities than just those of a dominant group, which, if we're honest, tends to be overwhelmingly male. And so I think it's it's important to note, too, in this you know, conversation that by saying women, we're not actually talking about a homogenous group that, you know, women and all of us carry a lot of social identities with us that can compound you know, exclusion or, you know, contribute to poorer outcomes and increased risk. So, you know, women from minority ethnic and religious groups, for example, or women with disabilities, women from low income households, or women who identify as all of those things, engaging diverse groups of women like these is, is really critical to understanding how a program is affecting those who, in many cases, have the most to lose if a, problem, if a program doesn't address their needs or they have the most to gain as well. And so um, I do wanna also point out that, um, you know, throughout all of our programs, the, the way that we implement is a bit different from um, a lot of international organizations. We've um, collaborated with local partners, local civil society organizations, women's groups and feminist movements in, you know, the countries where we worked for, you know, decades, these are longstanding relationships. And so at the country level and the regional level, so that, that ensures that the approaches that we're taking are really responsive to the specific challenges um, in, in these specific areas. And so local partnerships and, and co-creation is really a, um, a the, perhaps the biggest strength that we bring to the table at the end of the day. So sorry for such a long-winded answer, um, but hopefully it gives you, you know, gives us some good background and, and, a, and a place to start on what and, we're doing and how we do it. Yes, absolutely. I think there's several things you said there, and one I'm going to pick up on in particular as a, a really great jumping off point into, you know, the next question I have for you, and that was your, your point about um, just saying the word women does not even begin to get, you know, our heads around different barriers that women face to um, advancing in society or economically. 
I really like how you laid that out there. Um, because one of the things that struck me in a report that you co-authored um, along with the Asian Development Bank um, a few years ago called Emerging Lessons on Women's Entrepreneurship in Asia and the Pacific um, really pointed out how, while there are common problems across the world that women might face in advancing economically, they might face a similar problem for different reasons. And so there's a lot to dig into there um, to really understand what a particular woman might be facing in a particular place um, and so one example that you gave was the difficulty in accessing credit, for example, in many places, women do not own anything in their own name, therefore it's very difficult to um, establish any basis for being able to apply for credit from a bank to grow or to expand a business. But there are different reasons that it might be difficult for women to access credit. So that's just one example in your report. So could you perhaps walk us through uh, maybe that one and some of the other barriers to economic advancement, in this case, it was entrepreneurship that you um, discovered through the process of writing that report. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this to be clear, this question could totally launch a thousand podcasts. So, <laughs> I know it could, yes. <laughs> but uh, so I think I was thinking that maybe I could focus on three barriers um, mm -hmm. that you know, kind of we work on fairly consistently, and I think kind of illustrate some some larger trends and 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 challenges, but. You know, I'll start with lack of access to, to finance and credit um, because you, you brought it up and that's such a critical one. You know, we note in that report that you um, that you cited that, you know, in Asia and the Pacific, the formal finance gap for women entrepreneurs is 58%, while the gap for men is only 42%. And keeping in mind that there's a huge finance gap for everyone, I think that's one of the takeaways from those stats, but that women just face, you know, so many more barriers than men and it's complex. So women don't have access to traditional forms of collateral for, for one thing, um, because it, you know, it's required by um, formal lending institutions um, in general, because that's, they've worked with men all of these years, but women don't have land in their names. They don't have house, you know, their, their houses aren't in their names, not registered in their names. And so that's usually the form of collateral that, that banks are willing to take. And meanwhile, you know, banks, aren't really even that friendly to women. If we step back and think about what it's like for a woman to walk into a bank, you know, loan officers tend to have an unconscious bias, I mean, at best, conscious in, at worst, um, and view women as, you know, very, as, as higher risk than men, even when the data clearly says the opposite. Um, and that, you know, the forms that, that women have to fill out can be really intimidating for, for women who have never done this before. Um, and the documents to apply for a loan can be really difficult to get for women. And then we even go back a step further and say, when are banks open? Banks aren't even open at convenient times for women who very often have considerable childcare and other care responsibilities that they can't just up and leave in the middle of the day when the banks are open. Um, when you noticed, when you noted this one, um, you know, when this barrier in the beginning and how it can look different in different contexts, it reminds me of the example that we found from the Pacific Islands, where sometimes the closest bank branch is three islands over. And so it's a huge lift considering, you know, childcare responsibilities that need to be, you know, juggled and, and cost of getting there, you know, every time a woman needs to go to a bank. So in this case, digital financial solutions could really have an incredibly outsized impact 
whereas you know digital financial in, in inclusion strategies may not be that big of a deal in other places. So it has to be really you know kind of related to um, you know the specific context where where women are are working and and operating. And these are all you know the things that we've talked about so far have been all related to the formal sector banking. Um, um, area, but there's also microfinance or you know informal banking options that are much easier to access for women, and so they often use those and they go through those. But um, the, 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 it carries a ton of challenges on that side as well because there's huge um, you know high interest rates and short repayment timelines that can really constrain the growth uh, and ambition of women's enterprises, even if it you know makes financing more accessible. Um, so th I'll go into my second example, um, which is, or the second barrier that I think is really important, and that's lack of access to markets, which is, you know, really a challenge, especially considering in these COVID times, but even before COVID, you know, women have in many countries have to negotiate really complex restrictions on their mobility that never crosses the minds of men, um, and, you know, cultural expectations that women can't, you know, interact with men outside their households, for example, which is the case in a lot of countries in South Asia, it really makes it difficult for women to buy inputs, to sell their products, to negotiate compensation. Um, and so, the, you know, I think that the Asia Foundation, you know, kind of broadly speaking, not directly addressing that issue, but thinking in, in the COVID context has been really working a lot over the last couple of years in countries like China and Mongolia to help women entrepreneurs shift their businesses online as a way to overcome some of the in-person COVID-related market access issues um, and kind of set the stage, you know, for greater growth going forward. Um, and finally, I'll, the third barrier I'll mention, and I know this is long-winded, so I'll try to speed it up. Um, uh, it's about networks and skill building. I think this is so important, and we work on this a lot. Um, women's businesses tend to be concentrated in services and other low-growth sectors, and they're really underrepresented in STEM sectors, science, technology, um, engineering, and math. And those, those sectors tend to be where the high-growth opportunities are, and they're also male-dominated. Um, and I'm here to say that the old boys network is, is really alive and well in these sectors. And it can be really hard for women to not only break into STEM fields, but you know, once they're there, they face incredibly harsh working environments, sometimes replete with um, discrimination and sexual harassment and just plain unfriendly working conditions. And so that makes it really hard you know, to grow into leadership positions or even to stay in the field at all. There's huge attrition rates among women um, in STEM fields um, in Asia and, and elsewhere. So recognizing, you know, all of these things, the Asia Foundation launched um, a program called Go Digital ASEAN, which is an initiative that is working in 10 countries, and it aims to really broaden the digital skills of um, our target is 200,000 people from rural regions and underserved communities, really focusing in on women-led small and micro businesses, um, as well as those that, you know, unemployed youth, um, uh, ethnic minorities, and people with disabilities. So it's an amazing program. Um, it's really been incredible to watch. We're also creating, um, creating a women in STEM network in the Asia Pacific region as part of the Future Skills Alliance, which was just launched this year, actually. Um, and we're going to be 
the, the program is really going to focus on offering mentoring and networking opportunities to support early career women um, working in STEM fields to build their confidence, build their skills, and also to build their support systems so that they'll be able to, you know, set them up for success in their fields um, in the long run. And so that they'll stay in these, um, you know, kind of high income, high potential um, sectors. So another long-winded answer. So apologies for that, but I I could go on and on when it comes to the to the question of barriers. I know you could, and that that is a terrific kind of summary to get us even started thinking about all these things. And I know we could probably do several podcast episodes with you, Kate, on each one of these. Um, there is so much here. A few things that struck me in what you just said. One, your emphasis on digital that you mentioned a few times, it seems like that might offer some hope or possibility of new strategies, even things that are already happening, like Go Digital ASEAN, for example, to try to maybe address some of these barriers in new ways. Um, secondly, your <clears throat> emphasis there toward the end um, of your discussion there on networking and mentoring, that seems really important. And I want to follow up on that one too. And also an area where you, I already know the Asia Foundation has done some work on this, and we'll, we'll talk about that a, a little bit later too in the podcast, but where you don't have to wait for government policy to do something for you, but you can start building on the ground these networks to help women learn and bolster and support each other. Um, and finally, your mention of kind of cultural expectations and unconscious bias that might be at play in some of these barriers is what I want to pick up on next, um, because I think that's really important to understand and um, really kind of hard to dislodge or to get at. So I want to talk with you yeah. a little bit more about, you know, how you can do that or what the approaches are, you know, in, in some places, and I learned this through my time at the Asia Foundation, um, <laughs> there's not a single law on the books in some countries that bars women from things like owning a business or other assets, but the barriers rather spring from cultural norms. And um, I'll quote again from your report, um, again, that you co-authored with the Asia Development Bank, um, your report notes that any effort to address barriers has to address the underlying cultural norms of a community. And in fact, the World Bank WTO study I mentioned at the outset of our podcast interview here today makes a similar point, noting that, quote, for women to fully benefit from trade, changes in socio-cultural attitudes are often necessary. Trade policies cannot overcome discriminatory legal and socio-cultural barriers that prevent women from opening a bank account, running their own businesses, working in certain sectors, or crossing borders, unquote. So addressing underlying cultural barriers, I know we could have an entire episode on this, um, but I want to get initial thoughts from you on how, um, well, really two questions. The first one is, how do you even begin to approach the task of changing deeply embedded cultural norms that are holding women back? Um, I mean, so this is, this is a really, it's a hard question, but it's like, it goes to the, to the crux of the issue in a lot of ways. So, I mean, gender norms aren't constant um, or uniform across communities. And I think, you know, if there's anything we've learned, it's that nuance is everything in terms of being able to, um, you know, get the message right, the priorities right when it comes to gender equality and women's empowerment. Um, you know, it, as a lived experience in communities. So my response to that question, you know, of how to support positive norms change is really to invest heavily and directly in local women's organizations and feminist movements. There are incredible visionaries who, um, you know, they, they know what the needs are, what, they, what needs to get done 
in their communities and in their countries. And so just making sure that they have the financial support and the platform to execute their, their mission um, is really critical. And, you know, they, they are the, the best ones to be able to, you know, have these, these discussions to open these doors to, you know, potential new ways of thinking about um, women's roles in society. And so I'll say this too, that in, in order to support that work, I think it's also really important um, to think about data and evidence. Um, it's like this huge, you know, kind of elephant in the corner of just about every room um, that you're gonna, where you're gonna talk about gender. It's to, you know, we need, we need data to build the case for change so that, you know, collecting and publishing gender disaggregated and gender sensitive data down to the local level um, will go a long way to changing mindsets because people will better understand you know, what's happening in their communities um, and why. And there will be evidence out there that will start these discussions and you know, women's movements could um, really desperately, and, and everyone else, governments, um, you know, private sector, everyone could, could use these conversations to, to, advance, um, to advance gender equality goals. Excellent point about data and one that I wanna delve into more with you. We've been hearing a lot about this lately. But first, I want to ask you one more question about, you know, following up on what you said about investing heavily in kind of women's networks. This is something I investigated a little bit, again, when I was at the Asia Foundation with one particular case study in Bangladesh, where, uh, again, we have a case where women um, entrepreneurs did not have any assets in their names. It was kind of related to cultural norms there. But working with the Asia Foundation, a group of women came together and figured out a solution to their common problem, which was that they formed what they called social collateral through their own business association. So women could apply for loans and they would all vouch for each other um, and kind of serve as guarantors on each loan application. Um, so by kind of coming together and forming the social collateral, they could apply for loans, receive the loans. And it was actually working quite well at the time, at least that I was looking at this. But what struck me in thinking about this and looking back on it is it's kind of a workaround to the underlying problem. It didn't change the fact that women, these women still had no assets in their name. They just found a way around it and it was working, you know, at the time. And so a question I have for you is, is some, sometimes are there just kind of these necessary workarounds or interim steps toward greater change before you can get to that, you know, greater change um, that gets at the deeper underlying problem? Yeah, I mean, totally. And I think that, you know, so workarounds don't really fundamentally, um, you know, eliminate the barrier outright. It it definitely moves the needle in the right direction. And you know, with gender equality, I think one of the hardest things for for me sometimes is that you know I I like you know instant gratification. Who doesn't? But you know, recognizing that that these endeavors that we're that we're in that we're trying to and these these norms that we're trying to change. Um, globally is this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. And we know that gender norms, you know, are somewhat flexible, but they're really resistant to change. So working in increments, you know, can be really effective. And this is, I guess, there's one other point that I'll make, you know, from this example of, um, of these Bangladeshi women that you mentioned. And I'd love that you, you still remember this example um, from back in the day, but, um, one of the things that really struck me when I was, you know, writing that report with the ADB was that, you know, the, one of the, the indicators of success for a lot of these women's economic program empowerment programs is 
you know, how many businesses have been started? What is their increased revenue? Um, you know, really looking at kind of hard data as to, you know, in economic terms. And what we don't do a very good job of collecting is the kind of ancillary or, you know, kind of attenuating effects that have huge impacts on women's individual lives, such as just having more, like you said, social collateral and what that means for their, um, for their confidence, for their ability to, um, you know, step out and start becoming more public figures, um, you know, women's leadership in, in local communities, even, you know, running for office. A lot of women who start businesses will eventually, you know, some women, I shouldn't say a lot, but, you know, some women then go on to be, you know, leaders in, in public office. And so thinking about what empowerment means, economic empowerment means in the broad context of women's well-being and ability to fully live out their potential, I think is, is so important. And it goes back to the norms work that, you know, th these things are slow, but it happens, you know, in individual lives and it happens, you know, kind of in broader communities. And sometimes between the two is kind of where the magic happens. Okay, thank you, Kate. Let's let's talk about data too. Let's come back to that um, because I've been hearing more emphasis on data as well lately. Um, a key takeaway from again the report that you co-authored with the ADB is that there's no single fix to many of these challenges. I think that's pretty evident by this point in the conversation too. They require really tailored solutions um, that take account of specific conditions in each place. And that requires really good data. And you know, I, it struck me a few weeks ago, I listened to a public webinar um, hosted by the Washington International Trade Association, which does great work in educating a lot of us about trade. And this one was on gender and trade. And the headline takeaway from that session echoed your point that there is a need for more data, in particular, gender disaggregated data. So first, help us understand what is gender disaggregated data and what does it tell us? Okay. so. Great. I'm so excited we get to go back. To this. <laughs> <laughs> so gender or sex disaggregated data is breaking out the responses of men and women or the experiences of men and women and, and other, you know, social factors um, to better understand what's really happening to different groups that may be differently affected by a problem you know, or a solution that would be obscured if you just looked at the top line um, uh, data point. So gender disaggregated data can be qualitative or quantitative, but overall it, it can help identify gender inequities in outcomes. Um, it can help identify what's working for women and for men for that matter. And if you gather data over time, you can start to monitor progress and understand the progress that you're seeing on a given problem um, or initiative. So I'll also say that gender disaggregated data is only one part of the gender data toolkit, if I can use that term, um, because it, there's also gender sensitive data collection, which is a bit different, which considers what questions are important to ask to really get at the heart of whatever issue you're trying to address from a gender perspective. So for example, if you're you know, doing a survey and asking entrepreneurs, men and women, about constraints to growth during the pandemic, and you don't include a question about unpaid care responsibilities, then you're very likely going to miss the boat entirely for half of your, of your respondents. 
So, you know, ensuring that you're asking the right questions is just absolutely critically important. And I think equally important is making sure that decision makers, be that, you know, in the private sector and companies or um, decision makers in, in, in government are aware that gender disaggregated data exists so that they can actually use it to make better policies and, and decisions. And, you know, that'll increase the demand for that data so that there's sustained funding over time so that that gender data will, you know, kind of continue and that longitudinal perspective um, is possible. So if, if anybody on your, you know, listening to your podcast is interested in a deeper dive into gender data, I highly recommend um, taking a look at Data2x, which is a, an organization that's working to build the case and mobilize action for expanding gender data globally. So you'll get a lot more information about why gender data is really critical. And the World Bank has its gender data portal, which is you know, all of the, the gender data that the World Bank has available in a really nice format. So it's just um, an incredible resource. Highly recommend. Thank you, Kate. We'll put both of those uh, links to those in our show notes. Um, that's very helpful. So uh, this gets to my question, you know, is there a lack of data or is there a lack of awareness of the data? Because I've heard so much about this lack of data and I'm kind of wondering, is it more a lack of the data itself or a lack of, you know, easy access to it or a lack of just awareness that it exists among policymakers. So, you know, and I've also been pondering the fact that, you know, organizations like the Asia Foundation, which has been in existence for 70 years, as you <laughs> reminded me, um, right. there are case studies produced, you know, by the Asia Foundation on its work, there is data. So where does, where is, what is the real problem, a lack of data or a lack of awareness or both kind of help us understand, you know, what we're missing here? Yeah, I think it's C, all of the above. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, but I think, I mean, there are several reasons and I think there's, they're, they're somewhat overlapping, but you know, there's, okay, so there's a lack of data at the national level, particularly for um, sex disaggregated and gender sensitive data collection. There's, there's a lack of, sorry, there's a lack of funding. Um, and so I think that's a really big problem that national statistical offices need to be well-resourced um, in order to be able to collect data at a, high, um, at a high quality over time. And I think there's also a lack of demand from policymakers who make the budgets, right? They may not know that this data exists or how to use it to improve their policymaking. Um, so there's a learning curve there that we need to go through. And then there's also the National Statistical Office's um, you know, staff. There, very few of them have gender data experts on their staff to really ensure that the routine data collection that happens, you know, kind of as part of, of, a, of a country's, you know, annual process, um, governance processes, that those are gender sensitive. And so we need more data on, on you know, so many things, um, but I, I will say that to start with, um, you know, to answer your question about what data we don't have, you know, taking an example for um, very recent and, um, and salient um, experience globally is that most country, many countries, um, I should say, have spent a ton of money on COVID-19 relief and recovery. But in many cases, we have no idea how those funds impacted men and women differently. We don't know how many women's businesses, for example, were supported with those funds and what was the result. So you know, most countries can't answer those questions. And so if they can't answer those questions, then what does it mean to, you know, continue to fund things 
that we don't actually know if they work or to not fund things that can actually be transformative at the end of the day. The stakes are really high when it comes to gender data. If you can't tell, this is something I've thought a lot about. Um, but you know, even in the United States, think of, like some of, some of our states have been really slow to provide data that have been broken down by sex and race. And even fewer have been broken down by both of those factors. So another, I mean, no one's getting this um, exactly right. Um, but another couple of big data points that we're missing um, that I feel like are worth noting is um, time use, number one. So, you know, which th that's so important for being able to, you know, get a fuller understanding of women's true contribution to GDP by capturing their unpaid care contributions, among other things. Mm -hmm. um, so that's critical. And then gender-based violence statistics, they are, I mean, which, I mean, gender-based violence is incredibly corrosive um, to society and has huge impacts and it takes a huge toll on the, on the economy. But the data is so incomplete that we can't really fully understand the impact of gender-based violence and what we can do, um, you know, to address it without further, you know, investment um, in, in gender data around those issues. Mm -hmm. That's a great summary, Kate. There's so much, so much to understand. There. Again, um, another few podcasts. Yes, absolutely. We could, yeah. we could do this for a year, <laughs> probably every episode. Um, I know it. You know, you mentioned the stakes, and I want to address that as well, about what is at stake here and, and the gains that may be possible when efforts are successful to help women all over the world. I'm going to quote again from your excellent report, and this was, again, focused on the Asia Pacific, but still a very large region of the world. Your report notes that an estimated 4.5 trillion, with a T, would be added to Asia and the Pacific's gross domestic product by 2025 by closing the gender disparities and economic opportunities. And that, that's just Asia. So um, tell us a little bit more about what the world stands to gain through a real commitment when we get better data and, and we're using it um, to, you know, what do we stand to gain um, from successful efforts to help empower women all over the world? Yeah, this, this is where I'm just kind of still shocked by how far we still have to go, given, um, you know, to go on women's economic empowerment, because it's such a no brainer, you know, in addition to the, to the quotes that, that, or the statistics that you just provided, you know, a McKinsey report um, found that advancing women's equality writ large, not just women's economic um, empowerment, but, gen but gender equality could add 12 trillion a T to the global um, economy by 2025. And that's the worst case scenario. The best case is $28 trillion. So, I mean, I see, personally, I see these issues from a human rights perspective because I'm motivated by the belief that women in all their diversity as humans, as global citizens should have the right to pursue their goals and, and achieve their potential and live full, fulfilling lives. But you know, for those who need an economic incentive, <laughs> the data could not be more clear that investing in gender equality will lead to sustained, inclusive economic growth and social well-being. So, yeah, I just think it's a no-brainer, and I don't understand where 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 we're stalling and why we're stalling. Well, and I was struck by that same point too about um, you know stalling writ large because I you know it's been a number of years since I was working with you at the Asia Foundation and, and writing about some of these efforts. And, and now we're kind of, I find myself revisiting some of those same points and same lessons that I learned just by mm. dipping my toe in the water on this here some number of years later. And so yes. 
So at least what we can do is, is have these conversations and try to unpack this more and, and talk about this more for, for all of our listeners to understand better, you know, and, and I'm also struck by, you know, we're, we're always talking about the stakes or often we hear, I should say about the stakes in economic terms and a dollar value, um, gross domestic product, things we can measure economic mm-hmm. arguments, but there is this entire quality of life sort of factor and well-being factor that is also a, as you said, it's a no-brainer. It's um, it's also another measure of success. It's probably harder to capture with numbers, but equally, if not more important um, for people. Exactly. It goes world. back to gender data. What are we measuring yes. you know, at the yeah. end of the day? Yeah. Exactly. So let me bring this a little bit back toward trade as we kind of conclude our at least initial conversation here. Um, you know, the, as I said, the trade policy community is talking about this more where they really weren't, at least to this degree in, in prior years. I wonder if you as an international development specialist and expert are starting to hear um, any more dialogue or see more connections beginning to emerge between the development community and the trade policy making community. Are you seeing that at all right now? Yes, definitely. Absolutely. In fact, I was just, um, you know, one of the other organizations I work with um, is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And one example that I heard in on that side of my um, of my work is there's a an Africa free trade agreement that's being, you know, currently being developed by the African Union. And I know that women's, there's been a lot of talk about how women's organizations can, can weigh in, how key governments that are, you know, kind of feminist in orientation are trying to ensure that women's businesses are able to profit, um, benefit from regional trade more than they have in the past and, and kind of play a bigger role in regional, in the regional economy writ large. So I think that these conversations are are definitely happening more and more. I think that there needs to be, I don't know, like gender experts, women's economic empowerment experts and trade experts need to be in the same room more often so mm-hmm. that there can be, you know, a better understanding because I'm not an, I'm not an, an expert in, in trade issues. And I feel like a fish out of water in a lot of ways um, in this, in this field, but it is so adjacent and so related. Um, but they, you know, it seems like it's, it's a bit siloed um, at this mm-hmm. point and, and should be, um, there should be a much more seamless conversation happening for sure. So let's say you did find yourself in a room with a bunch of trade policymakers um, <laughs> and they wanted to get your thoughts on how maybe how they could think about designing free trade agreements or WTO rules better with women in mind. You know, what would be your advice to them if that, that was the goal? Yeah. Okay. So with the huge caveat that this really isn't my area of focus and I'm feeling like a fish out of water, but, you know, in talking with, with friends who, who work on this issue, I think it's really critical for women's rights to be explicitly included in trade agreements. Um, and so far that hasn't been the case. Um, so far trade agreements, I think rely on ILO standards of non-discrimination to cover mm-hmm. um, women's rights. And, and, you know, that addresses violence and harassment um, and while that's important, it's only part of the story, as we've been talking about for the last few minutes, right? Um, and, and more importantly, maybe implementation is totally patchy at best. I'm not sure if there are any good examples of robust enforcement of those non-discrimination clauses. So, I mean, I'd, and then in addition, I think it would be ideal. I mean, I'm an optimistic person, so um, thinking pie in the sky, there should be special preferences to incentivize um, the involvement of women-owned businesses in trade. Um, and so it would be, I understand that's still very aspirational and, and not um, generally part of the discussion, but I think it would be great to have that be part of it. Um, I will say too, 
um, as another um, resource for your listeners. Um, I recently read an article that was really fascinating on this topic. It's called, Can Fashion Ever Be Fair? And it's written by Bama Athreya, who is currently serving as a deputy assistant um, administrator at USAID, but has been, I mean, really an incredible labor rights thought leader for decades. Um, and the, the article really highlights the ways in which the global apparel supply chains exploit the labor of black and brown women and what can be done to make trade in the apparel sector more fair. It's, I mean, it's, I'm not even going to go into, into uh, an analysis of the article. It's so complex, but so interesting and really kind of a, a master class on, on kind of the history of, of what, we're, what we're facing here. And it'd be, I think it's really informative and, and I'd highly recommend it just as, a, as one piece of the trade puzzle from a, from a gender perspective. Thank you, Kate. We will definitely link to that as well um, in our show notes. You know, I usually wind up the podcast by asking the guest, um, every guest, what is something you've read lately that was really striking to you, something related to trade or global commerce? It might be this article for you. Is there anything else that you want to add on that note? Yeah, it's it's funny you should ask because I've been reading a um, very academic book that has stretched my comfort zone in a lot of ways and brought me right back to, you know, my grad school days. Um, oh, do tell. Yeah. <laughs> It's definitely not like a beach read, but I mean, it's been totally fascinating. It's called The Rise and Decline of Patriarchal Systems and Intersectional Political Economy by- Not a beach read. You're right about that. (laughs) I know, right? By Nancy Fulbright, who um, has has been the leader in, in, uh, you know, kind of feminist political economy thinking. And so I like, I'll just say that, you know, definitely not for everybody, but I'm, I'm reading it as part of a very small feminist economist book club of three people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been really, it's been fascinating to, we, we all kind of work in the same, um, in the same areas of, of study of, of um, at, you know, practice. And we've had this opportunity to discuss this book in the context of our daily work. And it's just been really fascinating. And I, as you can tell from, you know, kind of what we've been talking about, um, I, I really appreciate how Fulbright puts unpaid care responsibilities at the center of her mm-hmm. thesis, which in my humble opinion um, is exactly where it should be. So I'm only halfway through, so mm-hmm. I haven't gotten to her solutions yet, but I'll have to get back <laughs> to you if I find any silver bullets and, and update you um, if I, well, in a couple of weeks, whenever I finish. That would be terrific. I'd love to hear about that. Kate, thank you so much for being on this podcast. It was, like I said, it's been a goal of mine to talk more with you about all of this. And I really appreciate your emphasis throughout on kind of asking the right questions. That's the approach I try to take with the students that I work with and in my own work and trying to understand different things. And so thank you for spending time on this podcast today, um, helping me think about how to ask better questions to understand women's economic empowerment. And I hope it's done the same for our listeners. So again, many thanks. Thanks so much, Jill. It has been an absolute delight to talk with you. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to JC Toman for helping produce this podcast. Stay in touch by following us on Twitter at YiderUNL. And if you feel like it, leave us a review on your podcast app. It helps us get noticed and improve the show. Opinions expressed on Trade Matters are solely those of the guest or host and not the Yider Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. 